Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom DC Spotlight for the week of April 27th, 2021. Rocky and I are going to be talking about most of the books that hit stands from DC this week. And the, the, so this was an interesting week. I Even though I felt like some of the titles were a bit derivative, I did sort of feel like this was a DC that I recognized. You know, it felt a little bit like a like a homecoming, which seemed to be settling in, certainly better than uh, than last week. And again, I had some specific problems with some of the stories, and we'll get into that, but I, I feel like that's more what I'm bringing to it in terms of having read DC Comics for decades, um, as opposed to other people who may be coming in new. They haven't, you know, they're not going to feel like, oh, this is a story I've, I've read before. So I don't know. What were your thoughts, Rocky? How did you feel about the week? Uh, I thought uh, overall... Uh, oh. Again, I, I was actually pleasantly surprised by a number of them. A little disappointed by uh, by one or two. But overall, like I said, I I was pleasantly surprised. Joshua Williamson surprised me a little bit. I actually enjoyed Robin issue, the opening issue of Robin. Action Comics was uh, bothered me a little bit. Harley Quinn I enjoyed. Teen Titans Academy I found was decent. Batman Superman, I continue to enjoy that. And Detective continues to entertain me. Batman Black and White, I was a little disappointed. But overall, again, I am I still have more of a grin on my face than not. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I agree. I kind of echo some of those sentiments. I'm going to be curious to hear what your thoughts are on action. I sort of felt like this was the best, the best uh, job that Philip Kennedy Johnson has done on a Superman issue so far. Now, I understand that's not a very high bar. <laughs> uh, so you may feel the same way uh but yeah i'm going to be curious but let you mentioned robin let's start there uh robin number one um you know joshua williamson we both had our, our problems with his work in the past and you know I, again i, I want to reiterate that it's never personal I, I know josh and he's a super nice guy and he certainly wants to do his best and there there have been some you know we've had some issues with this storytelling things have seemed to drag at times. And so, uh, and I'm not a big fan of Damien Wayne. I've gone on a record as saying that many times. So I wasn't necessarily sure what to expect. And I wasn't even sure if I was going to read this or not, but the premise was interesting enough. We know Connor Hawk is supposed to show up. I'm a big fan of Connor Hawk. So I thought, ah, you know, what, I'll give the first issue a try. And I specifically, uh, I'm going to try to get my hands on that, uh, that one in 25 cover that has the, the new character, um, and I can't, I'm forgetting what her name is off the top of my head. Um, uh, Flatline. Flatline, that's it. Yeah, Flatline, yeah. Uh, who seems to be a pretty interesting character and and sort of at the end kind of hands Damien his ass, which yeah. I absolutely love. <laughs> and I know this won't happen, but I, I, I pray to there, – there is a world in which DC has enough guts to kill Damien and leave him dead. <laughs> and have one of these other fighters that's fighting in this Lazarus tournament become the new takeover for Damien, basically. Yeah. That that would make this one of my all-time favorite stories of all time. Again, we know we're not going to do that. Uh, they're not going to do that. Damien's too too popular. But, um, yeah, there's a specifically a, a story in Batman Black and White this week that, that kind of sums up everything I dislike about Damien very, very well. And I, I don't think it's intentional by uh, the, the artist and writer Jorge Jimenez, but it, it sums it up perfectly. Um, but I, I did enjoy this. I mean, it is a little tropey, this idea of 
Damien going to some secluded island where you have no contact with the outside world and you're going to fight in this tournament to the death. You know, any you could think about, you know, um, was it Kickboxer from John Claude Van Damme or yeah. Mortal Kombat that's out right now? <laughs> yeah. Any number of, of story. Um, is it Enter the Dragon from Bruce Lee? That's a classic. So it isn't like this is the, the most original. Uh, but I, I feel like. Williamson does a great balance of giving us enough Damien to make it feel like a Damien book and, and still have it hold interest for people that aren't big Damien fans like, like myself. And we do see uh, several other characters that are, are pretty interesting. Some we've seen before, um, like uh, Rose Wilson, some others we haven't respawn, which <laughs> that's got to be the laziest name ever in the history of a <laughs> character. We, we meet mother soul. Who's <laughs> apparently the kind of the, the head of this, Lazarus, uh, and she's the one running the running the tournament, so to speak. And then, like we mentioned, the aforementioned Flatline, who appears to be a really cool looking character uh, in terms yeah. of power. So, I'm not the, the biggest fan of her look, but that that one in twenty five uh, Frederico cover, I, I'm definitely going to try to pick up one of those tomorrow uh, at my local comic shop. Cause I think it's just a spectacular yeah. cover and if well, she gets off, it'd be a, a good one to have. Yeah. She has an interesting tattoo on her face. It looks like, you know, when that, that, and that's what that, that cover, that pencil cover you're talking about really, really stands out. I, th- I think she's a very unique looking character facially. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed, so I should say, you know, Josh and Williamson, we mentioned as a writer, Gleb Melnikov is the artist, Troy Pateri on letters. Um, so Mel, there's no uh, inker, so obviously Melnikov's probably working digitally, so not, not to worry about that. But there's also no color artist listed, which means Melnikov is handling the colors himself. I'm going to be curious if he's going to be able to keep up that workload, because I think the colors sort of suit the book, but they are a little muted. I, I think that it would feel a little more dynamic with a little bit brighter colors. But whether or not he's going to be able to keep drawing a monthly book, stay on schedule and do all the artwork, including the colors, is something I'm going to be interested to see. Um, putting somebody like FCO Placencia on here, I think would be uh, fantastic. Eddie, uh, not Eddie Barrows, but um, uh, Antonio Fabella would be somebody else uh, I think could handle the colors really well. But yeah, I was, um, I didn't have expectations because I don't care for this character. Um, so I just kind of went into it and like, hey, let's see what what it feels like. And it, it was it was enjoyable. I I was pleasantly surprised at how much I, I enjoyed it. So what, what did you think, Rocky? Yeah, this kind of plays out like an interesting, fun little video game. And uh, I got to give props to Joshua Williamson. Uh, I had low expectations. He's not really impressed me too much in the last few years. But I'll give him credit on this. He, I'm getting a sense as a, as a writer he's having fun with this. And uh, like you, I'm not a big fan of Damian Wayne lately. I, I think that uh, they're, they always tend to push him a little bit too much on the uh, arrogant, unlikable side. And uh, I, I think there's more that they can do with the character. But at least they're having fun here. Uh, Damien here is off the grid. The Batman family doesn't know where he is. And usually they always know where Damien is. But he's off the grid. And Damien very clearly is, is trying to find his own path. He's hallucinating and uh, talking with uh, Alfred. And uh, he clearly he's uh, Batman seems to think that he's struggling with the loss of uh, with, with obviously the the loss of Alfred and the the, the fallout of the Joker war and the and uh, well he witnessed uh, Bane snap Alfred's neck so he's probably still traumatized from that or at least Batman seems to think so. Damien enters the tournament uh, by getting the attention of the uh, the by getting the attention of the tournament organizers by embarrassing King Snake who I completely forgot was Bane's father. 
I don't. I, I. I actually completely forgot that. I didn't know that King Snake was Bane's father. I. If, if I. If I knew that from past continuity, I completely forgot it. I'm embarrassed to say, but it's interesting that he, he humiliates King Snake, and takes him out, and he's invited to the League of Lazarus tournament. And I like all the characters here. I, I, some of them look really. I think ridiculous. I thought. I think Respawn is a character that I think looks like he. I mean, even Damien calls him. Uh, he. He says nice copyright infringement. Because he does look like a, a ripoff between Deathstroke and maybe Deadshot or and a whole slew of other Marvel characters too. Uh, but we got Ravager, Connor Hawk, a character called Black Swan and Flatline. And this new, the host of the tournament, Mother Soul, which you mentioned. There's other characters that are shown, but we don't know what their names are. Uh, and so it's interesting. The tournament is on Lazarus Island. It happens every 100 years. The rules are once you're on the island, you can't leave and you're advised not to make any friends. Don't frat, frat, fraternize because you'll probably end up having to kill the very person you're fraternizing with in order to win the tournament. And of course, it's uh, it's quite something when Damien, Damien challenges everybody openly. And that's where we're, we're introduced to Flatline, which, as you mentioned, Jace, is a really interesting looking character. Fantastic uh, variant cover that you're going to be picking up. And... Very interesting, and it, it definitely ends on a very surprise cliffhanger ending, <laughs> a shocking ending, quite frankly. You gotta wonder how Damien's gonna get out of this one. And uh, but you know, I'm I'm sure I'm I'm sure it was all misdirection or something. But overall, I, I had fun with this. I had fun with this. I'm curious to see where it's going. I still don't think we're going to have a lot of character development on Damien's part. This is a plot-driven exercise, a plot-driven story. But it's it, if I'm having fun, I guess I'll sacrifice some character development. Of just introduce me to new characters in a fun Mortal Kombat tournament. And if I'm bored, I can always watch the movie Mortal Kombat on pay-per-view, which just came out. Yeah, I mean, like like <laughs> I said, if, if if they have the guts, if if DC and Joshua Williamson have the guts to just let Damien's, you know. Okay, Damien's dead. Let's move on. Let's get a new Rob. I mean, I, again, I just can't imagine them doing that. But man, would that be cool? Uh, just uh, that would be because it, it would be so shocking for them to do that, and it would be a real shakeup. And I, I would like to see one other thing that I'll mention about it before we move on is I did think it got better as it went on. The, the first, <clears throat> the first uh, kind of scene you mentioned where he fights King Snake to get into the tournament that that felt really, really tropey to me. Um, he just so happens to fight King Snake. They just so happen to be a league of Lazarus officials there to give him the coin to invite him to the tournament. It just so happens this tournament that happens every hundred years is happening at just the time when he's left, when you know Alfred has died and he's left Gotham. And there's a lot of you know kind of well how convenient um, <laughs> in this story. But uh, you know once once we get to the island, it it, it picks up and you kind of just have to take that for what it is and, and kind of run with it. So, all right, next up is, uh, is Harley Quinn number two, uh, strange times from writer, Stephanie Phillips. We have Riley Rosmo on art, Yvonne Placencia on colors, Darren Bennett on letters. Uh, what'd you think of this one, Rocky? I'm curious if some of the, the things that kind of stood out to me were issues that you had as well. Uh, yeah, sorry here. I'm just uh, finding my notes, but, uh, well, the first thing I, First thing I'm compelled to say is I'm really starting to get accustomed to Riley Rosmo's art. And I don't know if it's because the I'm enjoying the story and I'm I'm really enjoying I'm really enjoying Stephanie Phillips' humor here. You know, uh we interviewed 
Stephanie Phillips on for your podcast there, and I I gave her some compliments on her her ability to be funny, and she she really pulls it off here. I, I there are some again. There's a couple of laugh out loud moments here. I I thought she really nails Harley. That Harley's struggle in, in again trying to be a de facto sidekick to Batman, trying to trying to uh, essentially trying to bring her own skill set to help the people of Gotham. And I really like what Stephanie Phillips does here by setting up Doctor Hugo Strange as sort of her counterpart, and he's he's she's essentially uh, competing with him almost for the for the literally the hearts, but more so the minds dealing with psychology of the people of Gotham because Hugo Strange wants to round up and, and help these clowns uh, that have uh, sort of been terrorizing Gotham that they're misunderstood. Dr. Hugo Strange wants to help them. But that's exactly what Harley's purporting to do. And of, But Hugo Strange has the support of the uh, police department, has the support of Mayor N- Nagano. Uh, but of course, Harley Quinn does not. Harley Quinn has a reputation, of course, for well, as being a, a villain. And... Strangely enough, Dr. Hugo Strange has a history for being a villain too, but for whatever reason, he seems to be given the benefit of the doubt by the Gotham PD. And uh, you, you can see where this is going. Uh, you can see the furthering of the relationship between uh, Kevin and uh, Kevin, who is Harley's sidekick. I also want to give some props here to... I don't even know if I showed it. Uh, I don't know if it probably... I probably don't have a picture of it here. You can kind of see it on the face of on uh, Harley's uh, for the benefit of the people listening in the podcast. Harley's sidekick, this guy named Kevin, a former clown, he has his own history, and Stephanie Phillips does a good job developing his character because he's looking for some redemption too. Because he destroyed some buildings, set them on fire when he was a uh, part of the chaos and the clowns during the Joker War. And what's interesting about Kevin visually that I think Riley Roswell does a good job is that he's got like double and triple chins. He's a he's a very obese character and his triple chin is actually, he's got another face on his double chin that there are certain parts in the narrative on the page where, especially in the, where it's really dark out, his face almost glows and his second face that's drawn on his chin actually blows out and makes Kevin look somewhat intimidating. And I thought that was really interesting and... I think Riley Rosmo is probably an underappreciated artist, and I'm saying that as someone who wasn't a big fan of his. But uh, I'm I'm entertained by this, and I really I think it's unfortunate that maybe there's some people out there that might have just written this title off just on the grounds of the of the art alone, and I think that's a big mistake. I think this uh, Harley Quinn under Phillips and Rosmo. I think this is I think this is better much better than people are tend to uh, prejudge it on yeah i'm still not a fan of rosmo's art um i i might be i might be out after this after this issue and and it's nothing to do with stephanie's writing um in fact i i very much enjoy that she's trying to bring in some of the things that i love about the sort of non-main continuity harley quinn stories that we've talked about you know over the last year things like um, the the Harley Quinn White Knight story from uh, the the Sean Gordon Murphy verse, um, Katana Collins that that wrote that along with uh, Sean Gordon Murphy. I think he helped plot it. Um, the Harley Joker Criminal Sanity from Cami Garcia that's got incredible art by Jason Bauer and Miko Suyan. You know those kind of stories where you're leaning into Harley's intelligence, and Stephanie 
she's doing the same. You know, she wants to remind us that, and, and we see it right from the beginning, the opening splash page, Harley's talking about, you know, the all the different degrees that she, she has, you know, master's degree, a doctoral internship, uh, counseling certifications, a way too expensive PhD in psychology, reminding us that Harley Quinn is, is smart. You know, she's not just the ditzy joker sidekick that she, you know, may have been first perceived by, but she is, Stephanie Phillips is trying to keep that humor there and, and that, I'll say, zaniness of Harley. Uh, she's trying to find the balance. Now, that's great because a lot of people love the zaniness and the humor of Harley. I, I don't. That's not what I sign up for. So I, I know I'm not the target audience for a Harley Quinn book. Um, I much rather would have just the the intelligent Harley. That's more interesting to me. So, um, you know, nothing wrong with it. This book is not bad at all by any stretch. Um, the thing that does bug me about it is it doesn't really have anything to do with the narrative that Stephanie is doing here. It's, it's clear that maybe more so than in a long time, all the, the books in Gotham, they have an editorial mandate as a backbone of Mayor Nakano and Batman's the bad guy and no masks and all that kind of garbage that's going to build up to uh, the magistrate, right? Like we know all that because we read Future State and all you got to do is read these books to see that that's a throughput in all these these books. And I just have a hard time with it because it's so idiotic. The, the stupidity that it takes <laughs> to make you think that, that Hugo Strange is going to do anything but what's in his own best interest. I mean, it is absolutely ludicrous. And Harley's right for calling it out. Like, you know, she's watching it on, on TV. Um, and I'm thinking right along with her, you know, Hugo Strange, he shows up at this this press conference from Mayor Nakano. And yeah, there's this new program called Secure and Fearless Engagement or SAFE. And Hugo Strange is going to be leading it up. And he's going to save all the people that were clowns during the Joker War. Like, how stupid do you have to be? How deluded? And then even the press that are covering it, uh, one of the reporters says, oh, very powerful stuff happening uh, unexpected moving apology from the people of Gotham. And I, I thought, well, I just read everything that Hugo Strange said. At no point does he apologize for anything or say he's sorry. So props to uh, to Stephanie Phillips because that's how the reaction that she has Harley <laughs> give us, right? Like, that's not a bleeping apology. Yeah. Has a woman ever heard of an apology? <laughs> Apologies usually contain the words, I'm sorry. I, I was right there with Harley. Yeah. I, I'm right there with her frustration of how stupid do you have to be um, I'm just not interested in this story. It yeah. is so it, it defies the bounds of logic. And again, this is not I don't place the blame on Stephanie Phillips at all. This is an editorial mandate. The whole magistrate, the whole, you know, we'll get into it more when we talk about detective comics, but the whole Batman as a bad guy, you, you know, the whole uh, Simon Saint. It, it's just yeah. it's just idiotic at this point. And I'm having a hard time yeah. staying interested in reading this because it's just. It's derivative. We've seen these stories before. Batman as the the outlaw, and God, I mean, at what what the hell does Bruce Wayne, Batman, have to do for Gotham City to prove once and for all, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he's a hero and he's there to save Gotham and he has Gotham's best interest at heart? He's time and time and time again. Mayor Nakano, I, I, I tried to like the character, but he's just an idiot. He's just an idiot who's easily manipulated. Hugo Strange clearly not on the side of angels. I feel for Harley. 
it, it's just frustrating. Well, it's just uh, really, really frustrating. But, but in defense of the narrative and and even editorial, if it, one could say that this is a change in the mythology of uh, on the of Harley Quinn herself. Uh, I think it's interesting that they're drawing the dichotomy between Harley's psychiatric skills and those of Dr. Hugo Strange. I love, I love the way how Stephanie Phillip, you talked about how Harley immediately pointed out the hypocrisy about how, you know, he never actually apologized. And she's, when she's ordering her coffee in the coffee shop, she actually apologizes. She gets so upset. They kick her out of the coffee shop and she apologizes (laughs) and she actually does apologize and she still gets kicked out. (laughs) I really like the way Stephanie, like you said, she kind of works with, I guess you could say it's lipstick on the pig, but she works with the narrative and she makes it funny and you could sympathize with Harley and you could, you could experience as a reader, Harley, frustration and also relate to it and so while your frustration with the narrative has possibly taken you out of uh, getting the third issue I'm actually in for the long haul because I really like I'm, I'm enjoying the story and I can kind of I can kind of get into the universe that Stephanie Phillips is building well we're really talking about two things here you know the frustration I share the frustration with Harley about how could you trust Dr. Hugo Strange and maybe I could get behind that. Maybe I could overlook that. God, how could you be so stupid to, to trust Hugo Strange if that was the only problem, right? Because I agree with you. This whole idea of Hugo having a background in psychology, Harley having a background in psychology, one gets a second chance, one is struggling to get a second chance. That is somewhat interesting, even though I think it is very stupid and idiotic to trust Hugo Strange. <laughs> if that was the only problem, then – I could maybe get behind it, but you throw in all the other magistrate stuff, which is kind of like doubling down, like how stupid you have to be to mistrust Batman. That's where I'm just like, it's too, it's too much. It's too much. And it, and it's probably why I'm, I'm, we'll be able to hold on for the other Batman books because it's only that one level of the magistrate. It's not Harley Quinn and Hugo strange on top of that. So again, it's nothing against Stephanie Phillips, but between that and the art. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably, I'm probably out, but we'll see. I mean, I'll get the, press copy and it'll be sitting in my box and I'll probably just get sucked in and read it anyway. So <laughs> all right, well, let's, uh, let's move on to the next book that we're going to. It's uh, detective comics, number 1035 uh, written by Mariko Tamaki. We've got art by uh, Dan Mora. The colors are by Jordi Belair letters by Adita Bidikar. There's a great variant cover by Lee Bermejo. Uh, there's also a backup story that's also written by Mariko Tamaki starring the Huntress that's drawn by Clayton Henry with colors also by Jordi Belair and Aditya Bidikar handles the letters on that one as well. So uh, yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this one, Rocky, because yeah, I kind of already spilled the beans on how I feel about it, but (laughs) what do you think? Well, uh, last issue ended with Sarah Worth gone missing and, and Mr. Worth or uh, is uh, uh, Sarah Worth's uh, father is a, is a crime Lord and he's a member of a large, of a big crime family, and of course, with his uh, daughter gone missing, it's very much a big deal. And uh, Sarah Worth's uh, b- uh, husband, or I guess uh, boyfriend, is uh, he's very distraught. Bruce Wayne is really concerned, and it's uh, Marika Tamaki continues to build on on all the stuff. I continue to be impressed with Marika Tamaki in terms of what what she's building for Batman here. 
it's revealed that, you know, it continues to throw little tidbits in like Bruce Wayne strategically chose his townhouse to be close to the, to the, to the underground, to the sewage tunnels. And, uh, in order to maximize his ability to get around Gotham, to do his investigations as Batman, since he doesn't have availability of all the high tech hat he had before when he was a billionaire. And, and now there's, so as Batman, he goes and he, he, he looks for Sarah Worth in, in the tunnels. He, he extrapolates that whoever, if Sarah Worth has gone missing, they likely would have acted very quickly. And he figures the only way they could have escaped so quickly was, was through the tunnels. And ultimately, he does locate Sarah Worth. And unfortunately, she's, uh, she has, in fact, been uh, murdered. What's, I will say what's a little bit tropey here and was perhaps, a, I think, maybe predictable, a little disappointing in the plot was right away... Right away, the police, because the police, Batman is the first to arrive on the crime scene after locating uh, the the corpse of Sarah Worth in the sewage. The police are right behind him, and they right away think Batman did it, which I think, I think is a little bit crazy. Given the, I mean, they got to know Batman didn't do it, which is so. But they right away assume that he did. That was really a stretch because as if there's really no reason to believe that Batman did it. Uh, I mean, if this was if this was the first time they were familiar with Batman, yeah, okay, I can see he'd be a person of interest. But that really never worked for me. Um, having said that, if you you know, aside from that, uh, it's um, it's clear that there's a cover up that's taking place. Uh, whoever murdered Sarah Worth wants to cover it up, wants to ferment. Obviously, rile up the crimes, the the various crime families in Gotham. Uh, somebody, before they can even investigate the crime scene, it's filled up with cement by by persons unknown, and Batman's not sure who it is. Uh, meanwhile, Sam, uh, Mister Worth himself is uh, he's absolutely livid, and he's he's one of the primary campaign con- contributors to Mayor Nagano. Mayor Nagano wants to make it a priority, so he's he wants to get something done or make it look like he's doing something. D- getting something done so he's naturally going after batman since batman was out on the scene which again isn't seems a little bit hard to believe meanwhile the boyfriend of sarah worth the person who was murdered he's acting strangely and ultimately that's kind of where it ends where he's a person of interest and then oddly enough at the end who pops up but i mean spoiler alert uh, the, the walking dead of sarah worth herself is it really her? Is it a? Was she actually ever actually dead? She looks like a zombie. That's again a pretty big cliffhanger here. Throws things for through a loop. So I'm definitely interested to see what the hell happened. What did I miss? What could have happened? I'm really curious to know who's behind all this. Is it? Is it the scarecrow? Is it? I. I'm really curious. Is it uh, like who's behind all? Is it Simon Saint? Who's Who's fermenting all this stuff? Because, you know, we thought maybe it was the Scarecrow who was building on the natural fear of the citizens of Gotham instead of creating it himself with the fear gas. It's, I'm, I'm still intrigued in it. I was, I'm just, I was just a little bit disappointed how, how, how Tamaki got us to this point. As for the art, love the art. Uh, Dan Mora, again, continues to impress. Jordi Belair in the co- colors really nails it. Uh, so visually, artistically, I'm... I'm 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 definitely in. I'm a little disappointed narratively how we got from point B to point C in this second chapter. 
Yeah, I agree with you. This is like, might as well have called it trope comics instead of detective comics because it's just one, you know, trope on top of another, you know, uh, very wealthy family and, and the woman is missing, you know, Batman tracks her to someplace in the sewers. She's already dead. Of course, the police show up and assume it's Batman again. That, that to me, that's the most ludicrous thing of anything I read this week. And then the, because Nakano has these stupid orders to fire at Batman on site and it's in the sewers with a bunch of uh, concrete and brick and pipes. Of course, one of the ricochets hits a cop. They blame that on Batman too. Again, it, it defies logic. It's so stupid. Um, no, Batman doesn't use guns. You guys know that. Like, why would you think Batman would have fired a gun and injured a, a police officer? It's just, you know, like I said, one trope on top of another including the uh, very intimidating looking, uh, I agree with Rocky, the art by Dan Mora is, is superb. Uh, the, the very intimidating uh, Sam Worth here, who's when he stands up at the podium at his daughter's funeral, kind of dwarfs <laughs> everything, takes up the whole page almost, uh, and he's clearly distraught. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, that part of it, the art is great. Uh, it's just, man, so many tropes, nothing, nothing new here, just so derivative we've seen this story told time and time again where for whatever reason batman's on the wrong side of of the gotham city pd um uh, i imagine jim gordon's going to come in at some point save the day i don't know what's going to happen with mayor nakano um i feel kind of bad for him he's he's i want to talk about a plot device uh and a poor one at that it's <laughs> yeah i mean there is it does have the cliffhanger which you know i am curious enough about my initial thought my initial impression is yeah this is all about the scarecrow working for simon saint stirring things up just to lead us down that path to to the magistrate so that's not really a, a place i want to go to um so how much longer i stick with these batman books i i, I just don't know um they've got to be better in quality than this uh, although I'm, i don't know i might pick this up just based on the art so what'd you think about the uh, the backup hunter story uh, the backup hunter story uh, was written by Marika Tamaki. Uh, the art by Clayton Henry, I thought was I thought was pretty good. I, I thought it served the narrative well. Colors by Jordi Belair. Colors really popped off the page. I love uh, purple is one of my favorite colors, and I just I, I love it's one of the reasons why I I, I visually I love when when the huntress is drawn uh, with stylistically. She's always one of the most eye popping and eye catching characters, and I think it works here. The the story itself is. I think it's a good character-driven tale. It's a little bit revealing about Huntress. I, I kind of enjoyed it. It was actually a, a character-driven tale. Perhaps, uh, again, I suppose you could accuse it of being uh, somewhat predictable uh, again. But I think it works here for Huntress. She uh, It stars a character named Mary, who she... Uh, Mary is sort of a... she's. She's just a Mary is a single woman who owns a owns owns a cat and 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 is a very is a very determined young woman who continues to make choices of putting herself in unsafe situations and you know and the huntress gets upset with this woman this this average citizen but over time begins to respect her and over time they become friends. And unfortunately, uh, Mary is ultimately uh, a victim of crime and becomes a victim of what looks to be like a mugger or a robbery gone wrong. And this this uh, 
I think this is only eight eight pages. I think it's only eight pages, but in any event, it ends with Huntress uh, obviously vowing revenge to find the person who killed Mary. Uh, I think uh, in terms of a character moment, in terms of what writer Marika Tamaki was trying to say, I thought it worked because one of the questions that Marika Tamaki attempts to answer here is, uh, is why in the hell do people of, of the, do the average citizens of Gotham City even go out at night anyway? They're always getting mugged. They're always getting killed. Why don't they just stay home? And at one point, the huntress gets frustrated with Mary and essentially asks her the same thing. And Mary basically says that, and this is the sort of the 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 irony of it is that the way that they stay, they keep in control of their lives and the way that she, Mary feels safe is by owning her choice to go out on her own. She's not going to stop living her life. She's not going to live her life in fear. And part of feeling safe is making a decision and sticking to it, even if that, that decision might be walking out in the street by herself. But it's it's about owning your own choices and obviously being very brave and doing what needs to be done and you don't stop living your life because of fear and it's really tragic that mary unfortunately meets the end that she does in this issue that's why huntress is so angry because mary mary is the type of citizen you want citizens to be brave and bright and vibrant and and, and unwilling to, to to fall unwilling to give in to the to the cowardly lot of the criminals in Gotham. And unfortunately, she, uh, she meets her demise. So I think character-wise it worked. I, I enjoyed the art, and I'm looking forward to uh, watching Huntress get her inevitable revenge on whoever did this to poor old Mary. <laughs> yeah, it was okay. Sounds like you liked it a little more than me. Um, Clayton Henry is a, a masterful storyteller. I love his transitions. I love his camera work. What I the only thing I don't like about his art is sometimes his faces are very long and it doesn't really make Huntress, especially on that first page, she's got a very big forehead. doesn't make her look very feminine um, at times, but it's a, it's a little nitpick. I think the art, and as you mentioned, the colors by Jordi Belair, especially are done really, really well. A lot of purple. I love the fact that the exposition boxes are purple. Um, like not that we wouldn't have been able to pick up on the fact that these exposition boxes are Huntress talking, but it, it, it does add something to it. As far as the story itself. Yeah. Like you said, pretty predictable. Um, it is giving us some insight into this version of, of the Huntress. Uh, but what it's reminded me is that I, I, I don't know. I don't have anything invested in this version of, of the Huntress. Um, when I was reading uh, Batgirl and the Birds of Prey by the Benson sisters when Rebirth started, uh, I, I felt like that characterization of the Huntress was a little stronger. Uh, and it feels like we've taken a step back here. She just, this version that we're getting in this, uh, in this story, almost by her own kind of definition of what she's telling us, it doesn't even have much of a person. She doesn't have any friends. She doesn't have anybody that she can count on. It's she's a loner that, I don't know. She doesn't seem to have much of a of a personality. Uh, there's something that feels like it's it's missing. I, I don't I don't care about this. I don't care about Huntress in this story that Tamaki's giving us. Like I could never read the next part of the story, and I, I wouldn't care. I don't feel that I'm pulled in or invested in the story at all. So uh, it's that's a problem. Um, but it is nice to look at, and I guess we'll see what happens. Maybe it'll uh, turn around in the next uh, next installment. So. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, yep. All right, on to the next book. Uh, to DC. So, of course, it's another Batman title. 
Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Batman Superman number 17 from writer Gene Luang Yang. Pencils are by Yvonne Reese. Inks by Danny Mickey. Colors by Sabine Rich. Letters by Seda Temofonte. Holy moly. This could be my favorite DC book that's coming out right now. This book is so <laughs> fantastic. What did you it think, is. Rock? Oh, man. Uh, well, uh, I feel bad going first because I'm going to say all the stuff that you're probably – I think we're both going <laughs> to – I think we're going to agree on this, man. Uh, I just – I continue to enjoy this. Uh, you and I both loved the first – the opening issue. This is, a, this is a lot of fun. I was talking with another guy uh, uh, on, on another site on this, and he, he used the word – he described this as somewhat campy, but – I, I actually, it is a little bit campy, but I love this. This this whole idea that this villain is actually a like a, a galactic director, movie director. And he's he's like, he's directing these movies, but these movies are alternate realities for Batman and Superman. And, and he wants to, he, he treats them like actors. Like, show me, show me some emotion. I want to see some fear. Show me some action, some excitement. Show me some fear. And like, he's like a director trying to get the best performance out of the, characters and the but of course the characters are actually experiencing the terror and the horror but that's part of the that's part of the charm of this and that's what's so fascinating about it and Ivan Reese man he does such a fantastic job the the film strips uh, I love the way that he did the uh all the scenes with the with the film strips and the with the bat plane and the way that the way that these different incarnations of Batman and Superman are and of course, Lois Lane, uh, her counterpart being the Spider Lady, and the, these two worlds where 1940s Superman and 19, I guess 40s Batman, they're sort of meeting each other, and they're they're trying to remember what what's real and what isn't, and it just really it's it's just it's so fun. Uh, Ivan Reese is, is does such a masterful job with the with the expressions on the faces, particularly of Lois and the Spider Lady. And Batman and Superman, you you really get a sense of the emotions of the characters, which really heightens the narrative because the the arc of the archivist, this this galactic villain, he wants to get the emotions out too, and that's the whole point of sort of like what makes it a little bit campy but thoroughly entertaining. And I just I just got a big shit eating grin on my face watching this. I love it. I every single p- page. I mean, I see this digitally. Up until this review, I've just seen it digitally. I can't wait to buy this and look at it as as a comic. It's it's uh, very impressive. I mean, the art is just, you know, as they're approaching the end and as they're defeating the the archive archive archivist, you can see how Ivan Reese how artistically the film is burning, and just as the film is burning, so is that reality sort of like burning away, and it's visually it's 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 you know it's fascinating and it's and it works and you really get a sense so much is said just by him showing that image of the film burning and sort of like superman jumping from film strip to film strip like it's like jumping from world to world and it just works it's it's visually it's beautiful how it's all put together and you you really get a sense that this is you know this and this actually could have been in black and white this could have been in black and white. The fact that Sabine Rich was on colors was frankly just a bonus. But this could also have worked as a black and white serial as well. But uh, man, what do you think? What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. I thought, I thought, like you said, the best thing to, to kind of sum it up is is fun. This idea of this auteur.io archivist <laughs> or, or director, um, 
it, it's funny, you know, so there's a lot of uh, screenwriters. We've talked about it. People that work in other mediums, you know, write for TV shows or whatever that have made their way into comics. Gene Luen Yang is not one of them. He's come over from the world of prose. Um, but this whole idea of this archivist or this uh, author.io guy who who's trying to make the, the perfect film. Um, and what does that say about the pretentiousness of film? And, you know, he, he's basically this guy's going to take the best parts, what he considers the best parts of each reality and meld them into one perfect world. And he'll film it and it'll last forever and it'll be preserved in, in film. And it's going to be his truest masterpiece, he calls it. There's a little bit of, of satire there in, in how certainly uh, yeah. film <laughs> takes itself too seriously. Right. And we certainly see that. Now and, and I'm sure I'm reading way more into it than than maybe Gene Luen Yang uh, meant. But you know when you talk about the, the success of the MCU versus the poor sales on the comics, and you, you know one is so revered and and gets all this attention, and the other is sort of poo pooed on. And so I love that Luen Yang is kind of you know whether intentional or not, he's kind of playing with that idea. And I do kind of wonder you know in talking if I get a chance to talk to some people, some writers who've come over from other mediums, I'll, I'll ask them, you know, Hey, have you been reading this and, and what are your thoughts on it? Um, and I'll, you know, I'd love to talk to Gene about it as well. If, if that was, uh, if it's just by happenstance or if he uh, is doing it purposefully, um, I will say that I didn't enjoy this issue quite as much as the first one, but I think that's just, it's just sort of necessary and what needs to happen here. We got to get some answers, which we got at the end of the first issue. And now the story is kind of playing out, but in terms of excitement and big giant story beats, we don't get a lot of it here until kind of right at the end when the author manages to get, uh, get a hold of a kryptonite ring. That's kind of probably the biggest uh, story beat that, that happens here. The rest, as Rocky said, is a lot of character development and setup for the, for the next issue. So it, it didn't blow me away as much as the first issue did, but it, it's still probably my favorite of the DC books this week. I mean, like Rocky said, you're reading it and it's so much fun. And you just have this big grin on your face because it's everything comics are supposed to be. And the Yvonne Reese art is, is spectacular. And one of the things that I love, that I love about it. So Reese tends to use really large panels. He has, uh, you know, a style that's very detailed, and his art is is gorgeous. And so you want to be able to see that. You want to use larger panels to, so you can see the detail. But sort of inherent in the way that he and Yang and Mickey and Placencia have decided to tell this with the film strip, he has sort of, you know, by design limited. He's he's removed some of the real estate. You know, you can see it in the images if you're watching on YouTube. There's negative space that these panels of film strip sit on, right? So the panels are a little bit smaller than what you're normally used to seeing Reese do. Like if you go look at any of the work he did on the Superman book with Brian Michael Bendis, you certainly will see that, you know, he very rarely does his art stay inside the, the borders that are, you know, on the panels. He, he breaks the borders all the time. Here, he, he doesn't have as much opportunity to do that unless it's specific, like Superman's breaking out of the film because he's traveling from one world to the other. Um, but the reason I notate it is because even though he's got less room per panel, he still packs in all the detail that he, he normally does. So I imagine he must work digitally and blow these things up because uh, specifically, I don't know if you have it, Rocky, but the image where uh, Batman and Robin and Lois Lane are fleeing 
uh, in the bat plane and all the uh, other planes are, are, yeah, there it is right there. That on the bottom right there um, where Superman is destroying the planes. I mean, that, that is a spectacular panel. Normally I would expect to see a panel like that from Reese as a splash page, you know, and yeah. And, and it loses nothing just for the fact that it's a little bit smaller, but yeah, this, this book is, it's firing on all cylinders. I can't wait for the next one. I saved this one for last. I read all the other ones first and I saved this one for last because I, I wanted to uh, just leave with a good positive impression of, of DC. So that's what I, uh, yeah. that's what I decided I, to do. I just want to build on something you said, uh, or to, and that is that what's interesting is that the villain in this piece the the motive is to the the motive of the villain is to create a true masterpiece and that's where you see the where you see this the satire i think cuz I, I i immediately thought of the snyder cut you know everybody uh, wants an a yeah, or cu- yeah. everybody wants an a or cut now everybody wants the true masterpiece and you got to wonder you know these types of obsessions at at what point do they become a little bit unhealthy and uh, there's definitely some breaking of the fourth wall here. And it is worth noting what the superpower of the archi- archivist is, and that is he can create props from any movie. Uh, and then in, he can any prop that he creates in the world he creates, he can retrieve those props and they become real. And that's how he uh, retrieved a kryptonite bracelet and then a kryptonite ring for Superman. So it's a, Yang's put some thought into this. So this is actually fairly creative and it's not just campy. This is entertainment. And like you say, it's, it's a very good satirical reflection of our current pop culture. Yeah. I mean, I think the camp, it just comes from the era that these heroes are from. It's kind of built in. Um, but it's certainly a modern story with, uh, you know, some characters that are uh, may have started out campy, but are, are it shows the timelessness of them. Batman's always going to be a detective. Superman, no matter if it's Golden Age, Silver Age or, or Modern Age, he's going to be true to himself. He's going to be who he is. And and those characters work in any age. So it's a good, uh, good reminder of that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Action Comics number 1030, World War Rising Part 1. From uh, writer Philip Kennedy Johnson, Daniel Sampier on art, Adriana Lucas on colors, and Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, and you mentioned not being that that happy with this, Rocky. What did you think? Uh, yeah, I. Well, I, I love the art. It's uh, it's dark. It's it's terrifying. It's 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 moody at times. And of course, while well, I'm, I'm I'm showing some scenes here that are great, beautifully bright and colorful. So artistically, not surprisingly, Daniel Semperi, he's a great artist. I visually, this was was great. I really had more issues with the. Um, I, I have more issues that are probably a little bit anal for somebody like me, who's. I'm still not quite over the John Kent aging up thing, and so it's probably unfair of me because I said before the the last time we were the last issue, I said you could legitimately criticize my my so-called review here and say, well, you know, Rocky, get over it, man, get over it, you know? And so I'm trying to, but it's, it's, it's really hard, but, but let me, let me try to be as positive as I can. I kind of, uh, I like the development with Mongol, you know, there's a, you know, uh, on war world, there's Mongol has received two gifts from this stranger. The first gift are the sons of all his dead sons, his sons have been killed by this stranger and this person has delivered the heads of his sons. And this is significant because Bendis established the idea that 
Mongol, that, that the mythology in Mongol's world is that Mongol, the, the son always kills the father to assume the mantle of Mongol. And so now Mongol doesn't have to worry about any of his sons killing him like he killed his father in Bendis' Superman run. And then the second gift he received is apparently going to be in the form of uh, something to do with Superman because Superman holds the key to one of the secrets of War World that apparently Mongol is not aware of yet. And this is one of the things that will lead Mongol to become fascinated with Superman leading into what we saw in Future State with Superman battling on War World in, the gla in gladiatorial combat. And this series and this issue ends with what looks like Mongol's warships coming to Earth to confront Superman. Uh, but there's a little bit of a wrinkle because apparently some Kryptonians uh, have, before they could fully attack Superman, these Kryptonians who have taken over this uh, ship, this one of Mongol's warships, they're, they're, they're Kryptonians and, they're, and uh, they took over the ship. So that's kind of a... Again, there's allusions there to Future State because we know that there's Kryptonians elsewhere from Future State. So that's interesting. But so that that was I, I actually didn't mind that. Where I got frustrated was with John Kent having a conversation with Damian Wayne. And as much as I, I, I think they got the ages right. John Kent looks like he's 17. Damien actually looks like he's 14, so he, uh, 13, 14. So I think they got the ages right. Daniel Samper got the ages right. But I was really frustrated how DC is so flippant about John Kent. John Kent is traveling back and forth between the present and the 31st century. He finds out all this stuff about how his dad may or may not die. And he found it all out in the future. No one seems to care that John Kent is, as far as I'm concerned, violating the rules of time travel. He's a walking accident waiting to happen because we all know what happened with Flashpoint. I don't know why it's, it was established in in the Legion of Superheroes. The United Planets forbids time travel for very good reason. Even the present day United Planets punished Jor-El to death by sentencing him to death for for engaging in time travel by sending and 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 sent Jor-El back in time to when Krypton exploded, tantamount to a death sentence for Jor-El. But nobody seems to care that that. In the future, John Kent is trying to find out how his dad died and for what purpose? To change time? To come back and mess with, with time? The whole thing seems a little off to me. Nobody seems to care about this. I guess maybe I'm an outlier. This is, to me, kind of bothers me, but I guess it is what it is. Uh, Damien, it doesn't bother Damien. It doesn't even bother Lois Lane. Lois Lane. I mean, John Kent tells his concerns to his dad. Superman tells Lois, and Lois has this attitude, oh, well, you know, lovey-dovey, you know, it's all good here, we've gotten through this, we've gotten through so much before, I'm not worried about it, and it's like, really, Lois? <laughs> really? You're not worried about it? You don't believe your son? You think your son's, I mean, granted, your son should be traumatized from seven years in a volcano, being traumatized by a psychopath named Ultraman in on Earth-3, but maybe that didn't happen. Anyways, sorry, I, I'm ranting a little bit. Um... I will say this, the reason why Philip Kennedy Johnson scripted that speech between John Kent and Damien is because John Kent, if you'll notice, every time he talked about a possible future for Superman, it reflected one of the stories of Superman in Future State. Because the different fates that, that, that Superman might have, 
they were all played out in Future State. One with Cersei, with, uh, one with the Kryptonians, one with, uh, Superman and Metropolis. Like he, he referenced all that. And all, those are all possible futures of Superman in the future. And even, even, uh, Mark Russell's, uh, the, with Superman and Lois there in the, uh, Imperious, Imperious Lex. All those were, implicitly referenced by what John said to Damien. So I think we're led to believe now that maybe none of these will come true. Maybe, but what's the truth? So I think DC editorial, I think we're headed somewhere, but we're not really sure where. And that's why I think that's why that was mentioned. So I'm hoping that there's a plan here, but I'm frustrated getting there. And I'm sorry for being so long winded, man, but I had to get that off my chest. No, I think where we're headed is Superman's going to leave the planet. Uh, it'll make sense why there was no recorded history of him anymore about, you know, he, he's going to go off. I, I think that the reason he's going to go to War World is because he's going to hear from these Kryptonians that showed up that say, hey, there are Kryptonians still alive out there. He's going to go out there and try to save them because it's his heritage. Uh, we see that because he went in that breach that his uh, he's got some sort of radiation poisoning. It's affecting his powers. He's going to get to War World. He's not going to be the, the Superman that we know in terms of power level. He's going to be stuck there. He's going to be fighting as a gladiator and, and whatever. Again, it's all sort of derivative. We've seen this story before with Exile done, you know, better many, many years ago. But, you know, like I said, there's new readers that maybe haven't, haven't read that. Not that Exile's out of print. You can still go and, you know, buy the, the trade paperback. And I do recommend that you do because it's a really good story. Um, but all that being said, this does feel like a Superman story, even if it's not the most original, you know, Superman having trouble with his powers, Batman and the Atom running him through some tests to try to figure out what's going on. Him showing up to defend the Earth at the end when the War World ships are coming in, calling for Connor and Kara and John to come and help him. All, all that is great. But again, it's, as you pointed out, it's the elephant in the room, right? Like I, I can't help but think every time one of these stories, I read one of these stories, it's like, man, you can lay it all at the feet of Bendis. If you just hadn't aged up John Kent and John <laughs> Kent was fighting alongside his father as, you know, a young boy, I just think that would be so much more interesting, so much more humanizing, so much more relatable. It doesn't mean you couldn't have had him go into the future to be part of the Legion, which Legion is, is done, from my understanding. Legion of Superheroes is canceled. There's no more Bendis Legion. Um, I, I get what you're saying about why is he allowed to try to go back and change time. And I think the reason is because he doesn't – and even he even indicates this in his conversation with, uh, with Damien where he says he doesn't know exactly what happened, right? This is the last time that his father was recorded on an adventure, and there's just – there's so much unknown – as opposed to Jor-El or somebody else who knew exactly what was going on and was definitely changing things. So that's the only reason that I can think of to why John is able to travel back and forth or not. But I, I think those days are over. I, I don't think he's going to be going to the future anymore. Um, and we all know where this is leading. We had the announcement. We did, Rocky and I did the special episode about Tom Taylor being on Superman, uh, the son of Kal-El, which is going to be the take the place of the regular Superman title. And we'll continue with this War World story here in the pages of, of action comics. So this does feel like the most Superman story that Philip Kennedy Johnson has given us so far. It's a low bar. It's a really low bar. Um, cause it, it, none of the stuff he's done so far has been particularly good in my mind. Um, 
And honestly, I'm just not that interested in reading another Superman goes to war world story, because again, I, if I want to read that, I'll go back and read exile. Um, but he is my favorite character and I am curious enough. And I feel like this is the most authentic characterization for Superman that we've gotten so far, I think. And to Rocky's point earlier, the art by Daniel Sampier is absolutely spectacular. It's so good. So the, the color work as well is done really, really well. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's not bad. Um, and hopefully despite the fact I'm not, you know, really excited for a war world story. I'm, I'm hoping it'll be good. Uh, but I do agree with you about the, the lowest scene where, you know, John tells her, Hey, dad's going to die. And her, her response is like, well, he's died before he, he'll, he'll come back. Like, eh. Lois would be a little more concerned. I agree with you, Rocky on that. So uh, I don't really have much to say about the backup story. Uh, there's a backup story, the, continuing the midnighter storyline with the Trojan guy that's in his head. Um, it's written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. Art is by Michael Avon Oming. Colors by Taki Soma. Letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, I'm not a fan of Oming's art. It really is quite poor, even worse than his normal stuff. And uh, I don't know. I just didn't feel I, it, this didn't advance the story forward. Uh, just yeah, Midnighter well, sitting around on the on the couch talking to his computer that he implanted in his head that is the brain of this other guy who he knows is a bad guy. Why would you do that? Doesn't yeah, make sense. Yeah, I, well, uh, th there's, it does make a crazy kind of sense, but the fact of the matter is, is that this has not been a, uh, a particularly, this has been a very hard to follow narrative. And this is one that I've struggled with. I've had to reread this multiple times and read the other issues because I always, for, I keep forgetting what happened. Basically, Andre Tro Trojan in future state, he's a he is this human being who changed himself. He hates being human. He thinks that the only way to get immortality is to become, frankly, uh, a computer. He he thinks that the one weakness that humans have are, are are the fact that we have both a mind and a body, and that they're both liabilities for us. And so he wants to become a computer. He ultimately succeeds in doing so, and in future state. Midnighter ultimately defeats him, but he defeats him in such a way that Midnighter's, the future Midnighter's future consciousness gets transported back in time to the present. And the future consciousness of the Midnighter is now in present day Midnighter, who is also now mind melded with his arch enemy, Andre Trojan. They're operating in the same mind. What is more incredible here and what people need to notice, and it hasn't been talked about enough is remember Grant Morrison is writing Superman and the Authority. And Midnighter is a member of the Authority. Superman is going to be recruiting Midnighter. There is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that Midnighter must know that Superman's going to do that because Midnighter knows what's going to happen. He, his future consciousness is inside of him. So he knows, he knows what's going to happen. So... And, and the irony is, and Andre Trojan, his, the other part of his, the other passenger, this, this is called the passenger part two, the passenger being Andre Trojan. The, Andre Trojan says to him, look, we're dealing with a paradox here. And, and Andre Trojan says to Midnighter, what happens if you get killed on War World? What if your younger self gets killed on War World? That, how does that make any sense? Because you're, you have to survive into future state to have your, 
to meet up with your consciousness to end up being transported back. I mean, it's kind of a, one of those crazy time travel nonsense things, but it's a good point. How does all this tie in? And quite frankly, Grant Morrison is a, is an acquired taste at the best of times. I think that, I think that Midnighter now, if he's going to be part of Superman and the Authority, which we know he's going to be, I'm wondering if the whole Midnighter angle here with the passenger and Andre Chojin and having his future consciousness in his mind, I think it's just going to unnecessarily confuse, it created a confusing plot point in Superman and the Authority. It's only four issues long. Morrison isn't known to accomplish a lot in four issues, I don't think. But in any event, I... I, I don't mean to be a negative Nelly here, but I, I don't see the point of this. And, and I think that this was definitely the wrong artist for this. Absolutely the wrong artist. And I say that with great respect to Michael Von Oming. Um, I'm a huge fan of Powers, but this just doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit the DC House style. And this most certainly doesn't fit the style of, uh, of Mikhail Janin, who's going to be the artist on, on the four issues of Superman and the Authority. But in any event narratively there's i got a lot of questions which are interesting potentially in their resolution but guys keep an eye out for how this is going to tie in the consequentially narratively how is this going to play out in superman and the authority i think that's the big question and th- th- how is grant morrison going to deal with it that's the question i have yeah i mean times travel stories are inherently paradoxical and that's why they don't work and it should be avoided to be honest, if, you know, because it, you can't, if you think about it too much, it just falls apart. Um, and yeah, this is really confusing. So thank God DC's bringing Morrison on because I'm sure that will clear everything up. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Jesus. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, Teen Titans Academy number two, written by writer Tim Sheridan, pencils by Rafa Sandoval, Jordi Tarragona on inks, Alejandro Sanchez doing the colors, and Rob Lee on letters. Uh, here we go with more Red X. Rocky, what are your thoughts? Oh, man. Um, uh, I'm just I'm just gathering my thoughts here. Uh, yeah, a n- number of things. Uh, I'm not really sure. They're, they're really, obviously, really gung-ho on this Red X character. There's a t- writer, Tim Sheridan, uh, he's very much a mixed bag for me. He's going to be writing the new Shazam series. I think one of the arguably two of the most confusing issues or confusing series of Future State were the Teen Titans, Future State, and the and and Shazam. I think they were con- they could have been written more with greater clarity. I think he's bitten off a little bit more than he can chew here. But I don't quite understand the fascination with Red X here. However, I will say things really picked up pace. I I find it odd that you know uh, Dick Grayson, after you know Dick Grayson is in a relationship now with Starfire. They've uh, so fans of DC of uh, Dick Grayson and Starfire, Nightwing and Starfire. They'll they'll really like this issue uh, because they you know and Starfire is jealous, which uh, jealous of Barbara Gordon. So. Uh, uh, Nightwing mentions about balancing his time between Bloodhaven, where w- we love how Tom King's handling him over in uh, the, his first few issues of Nightwing. So clearly Nightwing is balancing that and being a teacher at Titans Academy. 
Meanwhile, he's looking for the for the red X mask. And it's the strangest thing. For some reason, whoever is Red X, Re- Nightwing discovers Red X hacking into the computers in the Academy. I mean, if you're going to hack into the computers and you're Red X, why would you dress up like Red X? <laughs> if, you know, why would you, you know, if nobody knows who Red X is and you're Red X and you know nobody knows who you are. If you're going to hack into a computer in the Academy, why dress up like Red X? Why not? You know what I mean? It makes so it's so stupid to me. Like, I mean, if you're caught, you could you could just pretend that you were hack. You know, you were just a student. You know, playing with the computer. But anyways, um, Nightwing ends up chasing Red X in here, and uh, that new character Alinta, also known as Bolt, she's a uh, she's a uh, she's missing both her legs, but she has both her. Uh, she's got those. Uh, she's got those. I don't know what she calls them. Her braces or whatever that allow her to run. I think she calls them blades. Yeah, blades. Yeah, she looks pretty cool. It's, it's an interesting character, uh, and she's got a she's got a secret. And of course, her secret is that the benefactor that sent her to Titans Academy, that sort of paid for her way and paying all her tuition and everything, is apparently A W. And you don't find out who A W is until the end. And boom! Spoiler alert: A W stands for. Your favorite character, Jace, Amanda Waller. <laughs> just when just when I was reading this story and starting to think, hey, Titans of Kent, the second issue wasn't bad. We go and drop the Suicide Squad. Yeah, I wanted to throw up. <laughs> well, anyways, so Amanda Waller obviously wants to. We know from reading Suicide Squad that Amanda Waller is very disappointed with the performance of the Suicide Squad, and she's mentioned at the, I believe it was at the end of of Suicide Squad issue two that they need a speedster because they had a they when they during a day they had a difficult time escaping Arkham because they weren't fast enough and so they need a speedster and so Amanda Waller is obviously looking to recruit Bolt and she sends of course uh, she sends Connor Connor Kent Peacemaker and uh, Talon to retrieve Bolt from Titans Academy and interestingly enough. The one person that is protecting Bolt is Red X himself. And that's interesting because it's revealed that maybe Red X isn't so bad after all. What is the motive of Red X? What is he or maybe it's even a she? Who knows? But it's interesting. I, I, there, was, there was other good character moments. I'm going to give Tim Sheridan some credit here. I thought he did a good job developing the characters of Stitch and, uh, you know, Cyborg and uh, some of the other characters, uh, sorry, whose names elude me. Uh, but it, in any event, I, I thought some of the character interactions, uh, Tubi, uh, Changeling, uh, some of them I thought were, were, were pretty good. And um, so I think that I think that this is going somewhere. I think they're really trying to. Tim Sheridan is attempting to get some excitement, pulling some excitement in by getting mixing the Suicide Squad in with this academy. This is obviously a very uh, raises the stakes a little bit. If Amanda Waller is, uh, you know, if she's involved with, I mean, if she paid for the tuition of Bolt, how, you know, who else paid for the tuition of some of the other students? I mean, who really controls these students? I mean, is there are there other? Is she a potential someone who's going to betray the team? Bolt seems to be an unwilling, uh, an unwilling uh, accomplice with 
Amanda Waller, but who else does Amanda Waller pay for uh, that maybe is on the uh, in Titans Academy? It it makes you wonder, and it sort of raises the stakes a little bit. So, I I, I so uh, I don't know. I I think this is going somewhere, but as as we've said before, knowing where this is going in future state, it's it kind of takes the wind out of some of the sails, but. But again, I got to give him props because I did have some moments where I said, oh, cool. This is, I, I thought the Amanda Waller thing was actually kind of a cool revelation as much as you hate the character. But. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it, it's so obvious, right? It's like, okay, well, Suicide Squad, the, the only thing that would have been more obvious than that would have been to throw Batman in at the end. It's like, it reminds me of, of you know, back in the 90s when Marvel would launch a new title. And in the first five issues... You could always count on Ghost Rider, Spider-Man, and Wolverine showing up, sometimes together, sometimes separately. But, you know, oh, new title, got to make sure that, you know, we get eyes on it. And I get it. I get it, right? So Suicide Squad is popular right now. A movie's about to come out. Let's throw Suicide Squad in there. Uh, just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm over the Suicide Squad at this point. They're, they're, they're not reaching Joker levels of saturation yet, but it seems like DC is, is – milking it for all it's worth. And I, I think that's a mistake. Um, you're making me sick of the suicide squad. So having them show up was a real like head shaking, like a real, really, really, you had to go there DC. Cause before that I was, I was enjoying it. I, I, I feel the same as you red X, obviously very popular from the cartoon. And that, that feels a little kind of shoved down our throat sort of thing. But you know, I'm, it seems to be working, but the true strength of the issue and where it shines, as you mentioned, is is the interactions between the students, the interactions between the Titans themselves. Sheridan seems to be following, f- finding his footing when it comes to the dialogue and those character interactions. You yourself mentioned the whole possible love triangle between uh, Starfire and Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. Like, you know, when that scene showed up, I'm like, wait, what? He's sharing a bedroom with Starfire? Like, <laughs> man, Dick, he's he's got it all going on, apparently working both sides of the street. So it, it sets up interesting drama. I thought Cyborg, particularly his interactions with the students were done really, really well. So it was feeling like one of those really cool uh, books about uh, an academy, about a school, you know, and look at things like Morning Glories or Strange Academy. Um, I'm drawing a blank. The one that comes on Netflix, uh, Umbrella Academy. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it had it's got those types of, of relationships and you know, with such a diverse cast, there's a lot of directions you can go. Throwing the red X thing in there, you know, okay, I guess you need a a big mystery to kind of revolve the plot around and and you know, I have no real interest in red X one way or the other. Maybe it'll turn out to be somebody interesting and it it can turn out to be good. So, you know, I'm willing to go along with it for now, but yeah, the the whole Suicide Squad stuff was where I went. Really, uh, I'm in for another issue though. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. I think the art by Rafa Sandoval was done really, really well. The color work is bright when it needs to be. It's dark when it needs to be. I particularly am finding myself really interested in the character Mark Price, who, or Matt Price, Matthew Price. Sorry. Yes. Um, and he's somebody who who literally fell out of the sky, rescued on a, by an aircraft carrier who happened to be there. Doesn't know who he is, where he comes from. Apparently, he's very powerful. Um, maybe he's Red X. That seems to be a little bit of the narrative that they're pushing. 
So I'm sure it's a red herring, but uh, he's an interesting character I, I would like to learn more about. So, yeah, and, uh, so it was kind of a mixed bag for me. It certainly is, um, I thought, better than the first issue, better than anything Tim Sheridan did in future. So we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully uh, Task Force X comes and goes next issue and we can uh, cleanse our palate of that and, and move on. So, uh, all right. Let's move on to the last book we're going to talk about. It's uh, Batman Black and White, another of the uh, anthologies that DC has going on right now. Um, it has uh, some really, really great covers this week. There's a Lee Weeks cover, there's a Jenny Frisson cover, and there's a Gary Frank cover. I, I don't even know how you choose between the three covers. They're all so spectacular. But uh, the first story is A Father and Son Outing. It's written and illustrated by Jorge Jimenez and lettered, lettered by Rob Lee. And I kind of alluded to it earlier, and we'll get into the details of that. Uh, second story is called Signals, written and illustrated by Lee Weeks with letters by Clayton Cowles. Third story is Blue, written by Mariko Tamaki, illustrated by Emmanuel Lupacchino and Wade Von Grobinger, lettered by Ariana Mare. Uh, then we have The Riddle, written by Kieran Gillen, illustrated by Jamie McKelvey, lettered by Clayton Cowles, which I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about that one, Rocky. Uh, and then The Man Who Flies, written and illustrated by Jamal Campbell, lettered by Darren Bennett. Uh, there's also a pinup by Amy Reeder and another by James Stoko. So uh, we'll start off with a father and son outing. This is basically Bruce and Damien go on a bike ride and they, they go to sort of this remote part of Gotham City under a bridge where there's going to be some meeting later on from a couple different um, criminal groups and they're going to exchange something in a briefcase for something in another briefcase, likely money. And Batman goes through all the trouble of saying, okay, here's the plan. You're going to stand here. Then I'm going to do this. And then I'll give you the signal and we're going to shine lights. And then we'll have explosive set up. And he goes through this intricate plan and you can see it coming from a mile away because Damon keeps saying, well, why don't we just kick their butts? Why don't we just kick their butts? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, Batman has a plan saying, you know, he's going to come up, he's going to intimidate them because I'm Batman They'll hear me, they'll shout, they'll react this way, and then you'll do this. And again, very, very intricate plan. And then, of course, you can see what's coming when <laughs> Batman gives uh, – that later that night when Batman gives the signal after all the players are in place and these crime groups are about to make the exchange, Batman gives the signal, and instead of Damien doing what he's supposed to, he jumps out of his hiding place and says, hey, cowardly and superstitious lot, I'm Robin, and he starts fighting him, and, and Bruce just head in hands – um, frustrated with, with, uh, and yeah, to me, like I said earlier, this is everything that's wrong with Damien. He's impulsive. He's hard headed. He's, he, he doesn't listen. He thinks he knows better than everybody. And it's kind of why I like the end of, of Robin one, right? Because it was that arrogance and that, um, kind of thinking he's better than everybody that got him killed. And hopefully he'll stay that way because honestly, if a character acted the way Damien did in the situations he's in, he likely would get himself killed. So uh, again, it just illustrates everything that's that I hate about Damien and why I dislike him. He's headstrong. He's arrogant. He doesn't listen. I mean, his father no father knows best. You know, I, I hate to say it's a cliche, but when Batman's telling you to do something, you you do it. And and you know, I guess it's the whole father son rebellion thing. But yeah, um, as far as the story, I mean, it's very realistic for Damien to act this way and. But the art by Jorge Jimenez was was pretty solid. It's definitely recognizable as as his art. It was interesting to see his art in black and white. His art can be so clean at times. Uh, from one panel to the next, it gets very uh, sketchy. So 
Uh, what did you think? You, sounds like you liked it a lot more than me, Rocky. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you. It's, you know, these stories in these anthologies are, are always, they're always, you're meant to just get a snapshot of, of, of the characters in their essence. And, and this absolutely captures the essence of Damien. And even with Batman at the end with he, Batman has an obvious smirk on his face as he sort of plumps down uh, behind the ledge there. It's you, you, one openly wonders if Batman didn't, if a part of Batman didn't expect that to happen. And I also note that Batman wasn't jumping in to help Damien right away there. So I don't, I, I don't think maybe Damien is quite in the danger that, you know, one could presume that he's in. And, you know, it really, it really is in stark contrast, the, but, but the difference between father and son here. And it, you know, it works very well and it's fantastically drawn. I mean, that image of Robin at the end, you know, kicking butt and <laughs> having his own style and, you know, clearly there's no grace with Damien at all. Uh, at least not this, this particular Damien. This is, uh, I'm guessing this is still like maybe 11, 12 year old Damien with no grace, just all fisticuffs and narcissism, uh, spilling over and, but with a, with a lot of deadly skill. And the only thing preventing him from doing it is, a is him wishing to honor his father's code against killing. And it's, and uh, I think Batman's smirk, you, you, you can, it's up to the reader to decide what Batman is thinking with that smirk on his face. You know, he obviously is thinking, Oh my God, still so much work, more work to be done with Damien, <laughs> but I'm sure Talia would be proud. His mom, I'm sure he made his mom proud at this moment. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, all right. Moving on to the next story. Uh, Signals by Lee Weeks. As I mentioned, this is probably the best art in the book. Maybe the best art we've seen throughout the Batman black and white to this point. Lee Weeks is a, a masterful storyteller. He he handles shadow maybe better than anybody. Um, I, I know that a lot of people really revere David Mazzucchelli and and the year one story he did with Frank Miller and, and rightly so. But this is sort of the, uh, Lee Weeks Batman is very reminiscent of the Mazzucchelli Batman. Um, as far as the story itself, it has a lot to do with James Gordon and his early days in Gotham. It's been way too many years since I've read that, and if I ever knew exactly what's going on in in the story the the uh, events of uh that take place that tie in with this for from gordon's past i have forgotten them um but that didn't keep me from enjoying the story thoroughly the story the visual storytelling the transitions from panel to panel are just amazing there's one particular scene where gordon is heading to some warehouse in a decrepit part of the city and we're looking at the, these buildings in shadow and these power lines above. And as Gordon comes around the corner in his car, you just see the bright lights of the headlights. And then the next panel, you see the car with the bright lights of the head, headlights. And then you see Gordon behind the wheel. Um, it's just, again, masterful use of the medium. Um, you easily could remove so much of the, uh, the dialogue here, the exposition, Gordon's narration, and the story would still read the same. It would feel, it would have the same feel and in tone and pacing. So just, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, some of the best artwork I've seen in, in a long time. Lee Weeks is a true comic legend. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, in fact, Lee Weeks drew, he illustrated a lot of Tom King's Batman run and, 
I have to say that a lot of Tom King's Batman run that that Lee Weeks drew, I always said Tom King, uh, Tom King did not need to to have any dialogue. You you could that's one thing about Lee Weeks. He you just don't need a lot of dialogue for he's such a masterful uh, storyteller. He can illustrate any story so well that you don't need dialogue. So many times, and in fact, to the credit of Tom King, even though I had issues with his Batman run. And a lot of the Lee Weeks, in fact, Batman Annual Number Two, uh, Lee uh, uh, Lee Weeks uh, with uh, with the the future Batman, uh, you know, dying of Alzheimer's with Catwoman, an older Selina. That was another story that you know so many, so much of that those layouts in Batman Annual Two had no dialogue because it didn't need it because it showed those those moments of emotion. And you made some reference here. I mean, even here, I mean, the facial expressions on uh, on the characters says so much. Uh, you know, and just limited dialogue because you don't you don't need it. And like I said, masterfully done, beautiful moments, epic moments. You could see this playing out cinematically. You can easily imagine this playing out on the big screen. And this is in black and white, and which is a further compliment because there's you know heck you don't even need a colorist to do any work. So you know very very well done, very well done. High compliments to Lee Weeks. Yeah, agreed, 100%. Next story is Blue, written by Marika Tamaki, inks by Wade Von Grabager, pencils by Emmanuel Lupacchino, Ariana Mera does letters. This is basically the story of um, of Two-Face's wife. Um, and there's not really much to say. She's She's taken a job as a bartender to apparently stop criminals who come into her bar to have bachelor parties from marrying people, marrying women, and those women becoming the wife of a supervillain, apparently. Yeah. And, and the, name, sounds, the name of the bar is something borrowed, something borrowed, you know, something borrowed, yeah. something blue. So, I mean, you can kind of see the, uh, what Tamaki was going for there. Yeah. Um, and, it, but if that sounds as ludicrous to you as it does to me, then <laughs> yeah, you'll understand why it, I didn't care for the story. Um, like really? I, yeah, I don't have much else to say. I, I mean, the artwork is fine. Lupacino's art is seen here in, uh, you know, black and white and it's, it's well done, but this was, yeah, this is some out there idea for a, for a story. Wait, so Two-Face's wife is so traumatized by his accident and him becoming Two-Face. She doesn't ever want a woman to go through that again, so she's just going to get a job as a bartender on the off chance a supervillain comes in to have his bachelor party there. Okay, got it. Any, yeah. Anything to add to that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't no, leave you I, a lot. I love... Uh... Uh, I love Emmanuel Emanuela Lapacino. I I was privileged enough to meet her at the New York City Comic Con. She's a, a lovely young woman, tremendously talented. I loved her work on uh, Wonder Woman in the last past few years, and I, I love her work here too. I I I very much appreciate her work even more when when her art is colored, but uh, it looks pretty good in black and white as well. And yeah, this story, this story, this story works. I, I don't, I don't quite, I'm not quite, it doesn't upset me quite as much as it seems to, uh, you know, rub you the wrong way. But uh, the fact that Gilda is somewhat of a vigilante, I, I think is very interesting. And I actually wonder if, is this a new character? Is this a first appearance? Speculator alert. Is her new character named Blue? Or is that just the name of the, I mean, the name of the bar is something borrowed. It probably isn't a new character, but 
she did just murder somebody. And I'm wondering, is this a new vigilante in Gotham City? And is her name blue or, or does she have a, does she have a name? I have to, I have to wonder that. So, uh, this is definitely an issue where I, I haven't been buying the best Batman black and white. I bought the first issue, but I will be buying this one just for the speculation alone because this is, I believe, and I'm not a, I believe this is the first time Gilda's ever, ever murdered somebody or, or am I wrong on that? I don't know. Nah, again, I don't know a lot about Two-Face's wife. Um, and so I, I have no idea if this is out of character or not. I mean, I suppose it makes sense in some perverse way. But yeah, I just, I, I guess I just, you know, despite the fact that, as you said, these are stories about snapshots in time of these particular Batman characters, tangential Batman characters, um, I, I kind of felt like, what was the point of this story <laughs> other than to make me go, wait, really? She got a job and the off chance a supervillain shows up to have a bachelor party. Okay. Uh, the last story is by, or no, I'm sorry. We're not on the last one yet. The next story, the riddle by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. Uh, so this is kind of like a choose your own adventure type story. You read panel one and then it tells you to, to uh, jump to panel three and then, or go to panel five. So you have to choose what you're going to do. And then as you go through and you read the story, you're jumping from panel to panel. All the panels have a number in the upper uh, left corner. Um, and so obviously if Batman gets killed or what have you, you go back and you choose the other path. And But correct me if I'm wrong, Rocky, there's no way to actually, like every path you take, the Riddler and and Killer Croc win. Uh, yes, I, I'm... I figured this out, and I'm sure you did too. Um, and I, but it was—it's such an obvious answer that it might disappoint some people. Um, do, do you want to say it, or you want me to say it? <laughs> no, go, go, go ahead. <laughs> well, Batman says at the end. See what happens is this is what I did. I was I I I honestly I spent about forty five minutes on this pulling my hair out and everything. You don't have any hair to pull out, but I'm. <laughs> if you did, you'd have pulled it all out. But <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm I got a bald spot in the back of my head and I I, I had to stop pulling because I, I you know anyways I got frustrated and then finally I I jumped to the end and then what is it what does Batman say in one of the final panels? He goes, I don't play games. You know, and, and if you, when Batman says, this isn't a game Riddler, I don't play games. When you realize that Batman doesn't play a game, then what you're supposed to do is you start off in panel one, you're going to go, uh, and then what you go next is that you got to enter the unmaze as quickly as possible. And then what you do is you don't play the game. You, you go to the panels that are not part of the game. And those are panels 8, 20, and panels 39 and 40. So if you avoid the panels that that are not part of the game, you'll defeat the Riddler. Because Batman doesn't play games. So the so as I see it, the moral of the story is when, you, when you're a criminal and you are against Batman, Batman doesn't play games. Just like he told the Riddler, I don't play games, Riddler. And he got the job done. He jumped at pair of panels 8, 20, 39, and 40. Game over. <laughs> that's yeah, that's think, how I interpret uh, it. Yeah, I think 21 also. But I might, I might be wrong about that. Uh, right. But anyway, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you're right. But, but here's the thing. Like, I, I spent quite a bit of time, too, jumping from various panels. And I just wonder 
if some people are going to get really irritated and be like, oh, this is this is BS. So I, I'm going to be real curious to see if there's a reaction to this. I, I mean, I'm going to guarantee you there's going to be a Bleeding Cool article about this story. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it could have been fun. But the fact that they didn't make a way for you to win, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I okay, get the point. Bat, no matter what happens, you know, Batman always wins. And so I, I, I guess that's interesting. Uh, the art is solid. And it's an it's an interesting idea. So I, I'm not sure how I feel about it, to be honest. Well, uh, the last story is by Jamal Campbell. And if not for the Lee Weeks art, this would be the most beautiful story in the book. It's a Nightwing story, um, very much to do with kind of the inspirational feel of, of Dick Grayson, uh, the man who flies, as it's called. The art by Campbell is is just next level. It's so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. Um, I think it does a great job of, of capturing who Dick Grayson is and uh, very much has a feel of, of Tom Taylor's current Nightwing run. So, um I, there just wasn't a lot in terms of a story here. It's, it's more about the emotion that comes from Dick Grayson and how he's kind of a, a positive, one of the most positive characters in the, in the DCU. So, um, but just for the artwork alone, it's, it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. What are your thoughts, I, Rocky? Yeah, I, I agree. The art was fantastic. It was, it was just really beautiful. I don't, I don't know how to, I lack the language to adequately describe whatever pencil technique he's using here, but it seems to be, uh, the, the black and white art seems to be much smoother. The, the, the line work, the, 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 uh, the, the, the shuttle sh shading of the black and white. It's just really gorgeous. Even, even the way he draws Nightwing, Nightwing's got a different style, a slightly different style and, uh, and mode of dress. And it's, it's quite impressive and it's just, just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it it's not really much of a story, like you said. It's just really Nightwing, just being Nightwing, and you know, conveying, bringing hope to, in this case, like a young child, and and reflecting on his life, how lucky he is, and 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 his life, and uh, you know, and and his remembering his hero Superman, first meeting Superman, remembering his his parents. And the memory of that promise, the guiding light of Superman, the the wondrous joy to pierce all adversity, being all his Bat family members and friends, and it it just ends just just gloriously beautiful, with surrounded by I guess they're not doves, they're pigeons I think, but <laughs> I guess it, it's it's definitely beautiful, it's beautiful art. I mean, it it really the the entire anthology itself I think is artistically is something to appreciate. This is definitely a, a very interesting anthology. They always are. I mean, rarely am I disappointed on the art on these anthologies. I like that they take chances and they're not afraid to sort of go outside the box and try something dis different. And Jamal Campbell here, he's really made a name for himself on this. And of course, uh, on, on, uh, Naomi, right? He, he does yeah. do the yeah. uh, Naomi yeah. and far Naomi and then Far sector, yep. Yeah, so, yeah, no, he's he, he's good, yeah. Yeah, I would think this is the strongest art from from start to finish of any of the the black and white uh, Batman black and white issues so far. So, uh, anyway, that that does it. That's all the books that are coming out this week from DC. I will mention a, a few collections that are coming out. We've got Batman Superman Volume Two hardcover, Deceased Dead Planet hardcover is also coming out. Um, the V for Vendetta, which is a really great 
a story from uh, Alan Moore and uh, God, I'm drawing a blank on who drew it. Uh, uh, drive me crazy. <laughs> I forget. Uh, anyway, okay. it's a book, a book, a uh, book and a mask set. Um, so it's the V for Vendetta. David Lloyd, that's who it is. Huh. Uh, I, I wanted to say Dave Gibbons, but I knew that <laughs> I knew that wasn't right. That's uh, Watchmen, obviously. Yeah, David Lloyd, who I've met before, who's who's really great. Um, yeah, that's coming out. And then I also want to mention the uh, the black label John Constantine Hellblazer Rise and Fall, uh, which was three issues of uh, of black label oversized from writer Tom Taylor with Derek Robertson. That was an incredible. John Constantine story. You don't need to know anything about Constantine. That is a great story to just pick up and read and kind of learn everything you need to know about who John Constantine is in that one book. It's a, uh, it was spectacular. So that's uh, out from DC uh, this Tuesday as well. So uh, I think that's going to do it for this, uh, this episode. I don't really have anything to plug. Uh, it's been kind of a rough couple of weeks for me. Uh, and I just got my, my second vaccine dosage. So uh, feeling pretty, pretty achy and kind of under the weather. Uh, but uh, wanted to get on and talk some comics because uh, this was a pretty good week for DC. Uh, what about you, Rocky? You got anything you want to plug before we uh, head out? Yeah, and over the next uh, over the next uh, five six days uh, between work and everything, I, it's taken me about two and a half weeks. But I narrowed down my my collection, and I got a I got a top fifty list of my top fifty most precious sentimental comics to me emphasis on sentimental uh, along with 10 runner-ups and it took me a long time but i finally got my list and i'll be i'll be showing those comics and i'll be putting that together over the next uh over the next over the next week and uh yeah i'm really looking forward to that uh and i might have to break it up into five or six videos because i'm each comic book has a has a story behind it a sentimental and some some tragic stories some some great stories some not so great stories and some uh some yeah a little bit of uh i might even get emotional at times because some of some of the issues i mean i've been collecting now since 1976 so you know i i tell you some of the most precious comics in my collection aren't worth very much but in terms of dollar value but i wouldn't trade i wouldn't give them away for the world yeah that's cool looking forward to checking it out so uh, all right, everybody. Well, make sure if you're listening on the podcast, you head over to the Comic Boom YouTube channel and give Rocky a like for this video. Smash on that notification bell. Be sure you're subscribing so you know when all new episodes come out. Uh, and I guess that's going to do it. Uh, we want to thank you for your support, as always, for uh, hanging with us and talking some comics. So uh, we will talk to you next time. You bet. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.